All right, thanks to our worship team. Also, kids, pre-K, kindergartners, it's your chance to escape right now. You can uh, make your way out the back door. There'll be somebody waiting on you to ask you to be a part of Kids Connection, which is our children's church ministry for pre-K and kindergartners. Also, to double back on Dwayne's announcement, uh, next week is our reboot, our Renew Reboot brunch. So that's happening during the Sunday school hour. So if you're accustomed to just showing up at the 11 o'clock service, um, come a little earlier. Be a part of that. If you're not familiar with the Renew campaign or, or what it all entails, that'd be a great place to kind of get up to speed, get educated, uh, and then even start thinking toward, praying toward participation uh, as we continue to round that out and, and talk about some exciting days ahead. The new Sunday school quarter will then not start, well, excuse me, will start in September. Uh, typically, we have the brunch on Labor Day weekend, uh, but we wanted to maximize participation with the brunch, so we moved it to the last Sunday in August, and then uh, so the first Sunday in September, we're just going to be getting started with the new adult Sunday school quarter. So keep your eyes peeled for some new offerings there for our, our adult discipleship classes. All right, with that out of the way, we uh, are in our fourth week of a sermon series on the core values of Enid MB Church. And Teaching this way is not typical for me. Usually I'll just pick a book of the Bible and then systematically, expositionally, I'll just preach my way through the book. And we recently did that, as you know, with the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, for a year and a half. We studied it. It was great. I actually miss Mark's Gospel. I put all of my Mark commentaries back on my bookshelf the other day, and it was, it was sad. It was kind of like saying goodbye to some old friends, which... That may make me sad, but I did. I was like, see you later, guys. We'll meet again soon, I'm sure. But anyway, I approach the pulpit in this manner because I firmly believe that it's not my ideas, it's not my personal growth strategy, strategies, it's not you know, my creative lessons that are going to change your life for eternity. Not even close. It's Jesus who will change your life for eternity. And the absolute best way to get to Jesus is by studying the Scripture. And the reason for that is because Scripture is always pointing us to Jesus. You know, a lot of people read the Scripture as if it were about them, as if it were solely written to motivate them or apply to them or work for them. And so they're always reading their life and their circumstances into Scripture. But that's just not what Scripture's for. These 66 books that we call the Bible, they are about Jesus, They're about how God pursued to save, he purposed and pursued to save a people through faith in his son. Jesus is the Savior that God promised. He is the one who came and and divided human history into two parts and will come again to gather his own at the end of all things. That's why we tend to study the Bible the way that we do. But from time to time, we will take a short break from expositional preaching to do a series like the one that we're in the middle of now. So for two months, August and September, we are committed to thinking more deeply about the core values of Enid MB Church. We mention these core values every week, but we want to put handles on them so that you know what to do with them. And those values are, we put them on the front of your bulletin in case you ever forget what they are, but they are the gospel, people, and mission. And that's the order we're going in. Gospel, people, mission. So for the last three weeks, we've been talking about the gospel. We first talked about gospel doctrine. So what it is we believe and teach 
and understand about the good news of Jesus Christ. That was week one. Then we talked about gospel power. This power is what we've seen the gospel of Jesus do in someone's, anyone's life. So no matter your situation, no matter your sin, no matter your story, the gospel has the the power to absolutely transform you, to move you from death to life. And then we talked about gospel culture, which is what we hope the gospel does within a called-out community that we call the church. And so the progression is this. If we believe gospel doctrine and have confidence in the gospel's power, then it creates a gospel culture. And again, by culture, we mean, we mean that the gospel affects the mood, the vibe, the aroma, the, the environment, the sweetness of a place like Enid MB Church. And as I say all that, here's what you have to understand about me. I love doctrine. I would love to just park the car in the doctrine lane. But I don't want us to be a church with only doctrinal purity. We also want to be a church that displays relational beauty. As much as I want to rightly believe and accurately teach the gospel, I want us to live in step with it, live consistently with it, to live in line with it, as Paul corrected Peter in Galatians chapter 2. Because when our church's doctrine lines up with our church's culture, that results in a church that's not just popular, but, but a church that's incredibly powerful. And I believe that our world needs powerful churches. Not politically powerful, not powerful in their might, but powerful in their impact and in their reach. Because, because there are churches, and you've seen them, churches that maybe they pride themselves in doctrinal purity, but they are without any relational beauty whatsoever. And if, and if you've been in one of those churches, you know that those churches can actually be really dangerous places to be. They can be places where people, they're not allowed to hurt or to struggle or be honest or be afraid. Essentially, there are churches where, where there are churches where, excuse me, I can't say this, they are churches where people aren't allowed to be people. Because as you well know, all of us hurt all of us struggle, all of us fear. And so a gospel culture says if you're hurting, then you can find healing and rest here. Don't numb your hurt with substances or sin. Let us minister to you in your hurt. A gospel culture says if you're struggling, hey, listen, we all struggle. So we need to lean on one another. We need to depend on each other as we look to Christ who conquers our struggles. A gospel culture says, oh, oh, that's the sin that's enslaving you? Well, let me tell you about where I succumb to temptation. And let's pray for one another, and let's fight together for what we can't do alone. And on and on and on I could go with examples sort of like that. And so if you were here last week, what I said about a gospel culture, it segues perfectly into what we're going to talk about today. Today, we move to the next core value. You see it there in the title of your notes. It says, we value people. And that's important because, as I've told you before, a church is not a building. So this building at 2500 North Van Buren, this is not Enid MB Church. Now, 
we often call this building a church, but it's not. It's just a building. So furthermore, when I say church, I'm not talking about a philanthropic organization or, or a special kind of civic club. No, it's not that either. A church is a people. You are the church. The church is not here until you show up. Churches simply do not exist in the absence of people. So if a church is going to be what God has called it to be, it has to value people. Because without people, a church is a non-thing. But notice, when I say we value people, I put no qualifier in front of people. It's just people. So our core value of people is not saying that we only value quality people or rich people or white people or good people. No, it's not the way it works. We value people. So if you fit within that general category, the people category, you are valued here. Young or old, messy or cleaned up, Hispanic or black, lost or saved, in the womb or out of the womb, If you are people, you are going to be valued by this church. And the primary way we are going to express our value of people is that we're going to love you. We value people by loving them. So if you would, turn in your Bible to the book of Romans. That might just be my favorite line in preaching. Turn in your Bible to the book of Romans. I love Romans. Go to Romans chapter 12. We're going to be in verse 9. I'll read down to verse 16. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul writes, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so verse 9 is foundational for all that we just read together. Verse 9 says, let your love be genuine. And you need to know that that phrase is not, exp- it's not explicitly linked to anything in the previous context, in those first eight verses of chapter 12. So Paul is giving us a whole new thought here. He's transitioned in in a wholly different direction. There's also no verb in the original writings. So, So Paul says literally, genuine love, or sincere love. And I think that highlights the fact that these words are most likely a kind of heading for the words that that follow. In the, in, in the words that follow, Paul proceeds in a series of about eight or nine participial phrases to explain just what genuine love really is. These verses describe how a church like ours can go about practically loving people. But before we get into those clauses that describe how it is that we're to love one another, I need to say just two things. First thing, 
Don't forget that it is our belief and understanding of the gospel that fuels our love for one another. What Paul is doing here is a version of what Jesus said in John chapter 13. John chapter 13, Jesus had his disciples, they're in the upper room, and he says to them, just as I have loved you, you are to also love one another. The apostle John also did this in his first epistle. 1 John chapter 4, this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, then we also ought to love one another. The love of Christians for other people must be grounded in, enabled by, fueled with the love of God expressed in the gift of his son. Said another way, our love is enabled by our belief in the gospel. That's why our core value of the gospel undercurds, sort of supports these other two values. It's absolutely fundamental. Number two, second thing I need to share before we get into verses 10 through 16 is this. So basic is this connection between the love of God displayed in the gospel and the love believers are to display toward one another. So basic is that connection that Paul does not even exhort us here to love. He simply assumes it. Paul assumes that we will be loving, which is why he sort of goes a step further and says, this love that you have, you've got to make sure that it's genuine. So not a mere pretense or an empty platitude, but that your love is an outward display of affection and care that conforms to the nature of the God who has loved you. So don't just give lip service to love, but let your love be genuine. That is, that is to say, let it be without hypocrisy. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Which that command surrounding love is, is, is crucial in our day and age. We live in a time when evil is endorsed and encouraged, and sometimes this is done by excusing evil through putting it in the category of love. Love wins, our president tweeted when gay marriage was endorsed by our Supreme Court. How wrong he was. Love didn't win. Sin won, and it won under the clever disguise of romantic love. Which is why Paul doesn't use the word for romantic love in verses 9 and 10. He uses the word agape, the word for complete, full, unconditional, counter-conditional love. Because love doesn't win when, when we say that your romantic emotions are what define you. How scary would that be? No, love wins when you see someone you care deeply about who's lost in their trans their their trespasses and sins. And you love them enough to tell them the truth with tears in your eyes and compassion in your heart. You tell them you love them and you want what's best for them and sin is not what's best for them. That is love. That's what it looks like to love one another with brotherly affection. Verse 10. And then flowing out of that are the practices and the postures described in those next seven verses. So let's start with the second half of verse 10. Verse 10b, we'll call it. Outdo one another in showing honor. What does it mean to outdo one another in showing honor? I think it boils down to having an attitude that prefers to honor rather than be honored. If you try to 
honor someone, it means you love to honor more than you love to be honored. You enjoy elevating others more than you enjoy being elevated. So don't be giving a bunch of energy to how you can be honored. Give energy to how you can honor. Put to death the craving that you have to honor, or excuse me, for honor, and cultivate the practice of honoring other people. And along with that, I'll just say, beware of honoring only one kind of person. We tend to get locked in to those people that we like. One race, one socioeconomic class, one educational level, or one sex, or one age range, or one way of dressing, one personality. God is not pleased when he sees this sort of preferential honoring in the church. James chapter 2, 1 through 6 reveals this. James writes, My brothers, show no partiality as you, hold, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention, get it, show honor to the one who wears the fine clothing, and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. So church, let us prefer to honor more than we prefer to be honored, and let's let's beware of doing it with any kind of partiality. Verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Verse 11 is saying our love is to be active. It is not to be a lazy love. What is a lazy love? It's love that loves in words but not in deed. It's a love that says I love you and one of these days I may just get around to showing you that I love you. Now how many of you would like to be loved like that? Well, none of you would. One of the things I tell myself all the time as a father is, Love isn't merely verbal, it's a verb. So I need to give more than lip service to my kids. I need to show them love, and not just in the form of affection, hugs and kisses and those kinds of things, but through sacrifice and attention and time and care. It's the same in a church family. We're to be active in our love, active in our attention and our sacrifice, and in our time, and in our care. Theologian John Stott said, love is service rather than sentiment. The term there, fervent, fervent in spirit, can be translated two ways. Both of them really do apply to loving people. It can mean to boil, or it can mean fiery. So in describing diligent love, think about it this way. When water boils, it is hot but it's also moving. You know a pot of water is really hot when it's boiling, when it's moving, it's unmistakable. Consider fire. When fire burns, it, it, its heat is intense, but it's not intense for intensity's sake. It's also very useful, useful to cook with, to warm yourself by. Put that together. Zealous love moves us, like boiling water, to useful service of the Lord. That's why that closing phrase, serving the Lord, is there. The Greek text literally reads, acting as a slave toward the Lord. 
What a contrast this is to our sort of normal method of operation in the church. All too often we come to church, you know, seeking only our own needs, don't we? We so often show up expecting to be catered to. You know, we walk in, hopefully we've, we've found a parking space that's convenient for us. We get handed a bulletin. We find a seat, the one that we like to sit in, in the service that caters to our tastes. We listen to some music. We critique the setting of the thermostat. We only shake the hands of those that come our way. We listen to the part of the sermon that we find interesting. We sort of nod and smile as we work our way through the hall. We grab a donut. We complain about the coffee, and then we head to the car. (laughs) And if that's you, I am glad you're here, but nothing about that kind of presence says, I'm a loving slave to the Lord and his people. Nothing. Missionary servant Mary Slessor said, Love equals to live for. In the context of this church, who are you living for? Or is everyone living for you and serving you and catering to you? Because if that's the case, you won't be here long because you'll be unsatisfied fairly quickly. Who are you living for? In that comes joy and fulfillment, satisfaction. Verse 12. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. What is hope? Hope is the absolute expectation of coming good. Hope is the absolute expectation of coming good. If you absolutely expect good, then you're hoping. And if you're hoping in that way, with that absolute expectation that's going to result in you rejoicing. Two things Paul mentions here as he tells us how to be people who rejoice in hope. First, he says that we remain patient in tribulation. Patient because we know something better lies on the other side. First, we remain patient in tribulation. Second, we continue steadfastly in prayer. So let's spell out the game plan in verse 12. You can rejoice in hope because you're patient in affliction and your patience in affliction can exist because you've been faithful in prayer. So how does that apply to loving people? Good question. Here's my answer. You can only love people if you have something to give. And hopeless people don't love because they don't have anything to give. People who are hoping, regardless of their circumstances, with, with lives rooted in prayer, those are people who always have something to give. They can love because they have a place to love from, which is their hope from their absolute expectation in the coming good, from the energy and the encouragement God is supplying to them through, through prayer. Missionary Amy Carmichael said, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. If you have hope, let me tell you, if you have hope, you have a reservoir that will allow you to give love. No hope? Mm, I don't know. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints, show hospitality. So out of genuine love, we 
meet the needs of our fellow Christians. And let me say, I've seen so many of you in this church do this very thing. You know, there's a family that you, that you know of that needs assistance. So, so money gets passed along. An automobile gets provided. Tuition gets offset. Children get babysat. A lawn gets mowed. Meals get delivered. You're good at this. One of the biggest blessings in this area came when my daughters, who are 10 now, when they were infants. This was 2005. I don't even remember 2005, not because it was a long time ago, but because I had twin infants that came home premature, and it was just a blur, just a blur. And, you know, burp cloths and onesies and socks and just all these little things piled up. You know, Mandy and I were married for seven or eight years without kids, and so all of a sudden, twins, boom, our family doubles, and we're completely overwhelmed. We're not sleeping. And there's this lady in our church, and she said, hey, I want to do your laundry. And we're like, oh, great, you can, yeah, come over and do our laundry. That'd be, no, she said, no, I, I want to do your laundry, like, for as long as you need me to do your laundry. And so we had this system. We'd take the laundry, it'd pile up quickly, we'd, we'd put the basket on the porch, she'd come get it, and then the next day it would come back clean. It was like magic. It was wonderful. <laughs> and what was so great about it is, is Sarah, she wouldn't knock on the door and ask to see the girls. She, she wouldn't come in and, and, and visit it was just, we'd put out the laundry, and it would come out clean. And this went on for months and months and months. She was just, she was just contributing to our needs, really. In the early church, it was characterized by this kind of giving. Acts 4.34 tells us that there was not a needy person among them because those who had wealth would use that wealth to meet the needs of those who had nothing. It's a beautiful thing that the church is able to accomplish. Hospitality, as for showing hospitality, you may not see it, but hospitality is an act of love. To have people into your home, into your space, to to minister to them and and extend your life to them, that is loving. And this is happening all the time in this church. In fact, in this church, you're not only inviting people over, what I see happening is people are saying, yeah, you can live with us for three weeks. You're in between houses, yeah, we're going to be gone for a little bit. Yeah, vacation, yeah, just live at our house. It's amazing. And some of you are saying, well, it's not happening with me. My home is never clean enough, or my home's not nice enough, or my home's not big enough. Well, if that's your mentality, listen to this. I came across an interesting contrast this week, a contrast between the words hospitality and entertaining. This will be helpful. Entertaining says, I want to impress you with my home, with my decorating, with my cooking, and my taste. Hospitality says, this house is simply a gift from my master, I use it however and whenever he desires. Entertaining entertaining seeks to impress people. Hospitality aims to serve people. Entertaining subtly declares, this house is mine, an expression of my personality and my ingenuity. Hospitality whispers, what's mine is yours. Enjoy it any time. Somebody I read said, hospitality is practical Christianity. I love that. I think it's good. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Here in verse verse 14, Paul steps, just for a moment, he steps outside of the church. The whole list that we've been covering finds its application inside a church community, but here in verse 14, Paul widens the application to those who are outside the church, to those who bring persecution against believers in Christ. 
The Bible tells us that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. All, it says. And I fully realize the persecution we receive won't match the persecution that exists for Christians in Syria or in Egypt or in China. But it can be tangible. It can be very real. You know, it may come in the form of getting passed over for a promotion or getting teased at school or getting accused of being a bigot by the broader culture for our views on personhood or sexuality or whatever. Paul says, whoever it comes from, bless them. Speak well of them. In other words, don't badmouth others just because they badmouth you. This applies to Facebook, I think, even. I'm not, I mean, it's not in the text, but I'm, I'm thinking it does. <laughs> and this isn't natural, is it? You need the power and the presence of the Lord to have this attitude. Only the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and a robust understanding of the gospel can lead you to respond in a way that says, I'm going to bless those who persecute me, who come at me, who want to tear me down, who want to reduce me to nothing. I'm going I'm to bless those people. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to smile at them. Verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Again, it's the gospel that fuels our desire and ability to do this. Jesus left the Father He did that to take on flesh, to live among us, experience that which we experience, so temptation and hunger and suffering and grief. Given his example, we are therefore called to do the same thing with others. We're to leave our comfort and seek ways to weep with those who weep. And this is hard because so often we don't even know how to do it. We often try to just skip the weeping with those who weep. We, we try to jump towards solutions that will, that will fix a person's pain. Or we want to give perspective that, that we think they need in order to cope. The thing is, most weeping people, they don't need any of that. They just need people. People to sit with them and to, to, to listen to them if they want to talk and, and to cry with them if they want to cry, to pray with them if they want to pray. N- not counselors not psychologists or fixers. They just need friends. They just need friends. It's not only weeping we're to share ourselves in, but in rejoicing as well. Now let me say this. Rejoicing with someone is a better test of your love for them than weeping. You don't believe me? Ask a couple who can't have children what they feel as all the couples around them are having children. Talk to that couple. When God has granted someone else a gift that he has not granted you, that will test your love for one another. And at the very least, it will convict your heart and it will cause you to plead for grace and mercy. Verse 16. We'll kind of go through this one in pieces. The very first part of the verse Be of the same mind toward one another. Be in harmony. We are to be unified, not only in what we do, gathering in this room and singing these songs and serving in these ministries. We're to be unified, not only in what we do, but also in how we think. And that doesn't mean we stop thinking. You haven't joined a cult here. 
But it does mean that we agree on that which guides our thinking. We agree on the Scriptures. We look to the Scriptures. It's our authority. Then it says, do not be haughty in mind. This is just simple arrogance. We all, all of us have a deep need for what I call gospel humility. Someone has said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And there's serious truth to that. But you know, it's hard not to think of yourself. It's hard not to always be managing your own PR or looking out for your own self-interests. How do you avoid such a snare? Well, Paul says here, associate with the lowly. That'll help you. We are to go out of our way to make the unimportant feel important. Why? Because they are important. Associate with the lowly. If you've never gone down and served with Don Haskins Park, man, do that. Associate with the lowly. And not from a distance, not just from behind the table, which is great. There is interaction there. But where you're putting your arms around people and you're praying with people and you're listening and you're really taking people's needs into account. Francis Schaeffer, he wrote a book a number of years ago entitled, No Little People. And the book consisted of a number of sermons, but I believe the title was a sermon itself, No Little People. It tells us that to God, no one is insignificant. There are no unimportant people. There are only those who are made in the image of God. Image bearers. That's who we're dealing with when we're dealing with people. Then he goes on to conclude by saying, do not be wise in your own estimation. So don't be conceited. Don't be wise in your own sight. When when you're wise in your own estimation, you lack self-awareness. You lack the ability to say, I may be wrong about a few things. And here's the kicker. When you are wise in your own estimation... You don't need a local church because you've got everything figured out. And so local churches bother you because you think there's people there that are so unwise. And they're so unlike you. Guys, so much is riding on whether or not we value people and choose to love them. So much. This whole project called church, is writing on that. Again, Francis Schaeffer, one of my favorite idea guys of the 20th century, he said this, love, the love and the, excuse me, love and the unity it attests to is the mark Christ gave Christians to wear before the world. Only with this mark may the world know that Christians are indeed Christians and that Jesus was sent by the Father. Only with this mark He's not just saying that of his own accord. John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know what apologetics is? Apologetics is your defense of the, pa- of the faith, giving a reason for the hope that is within you. You know what the primary apologetic is for the local church? The primary defense that we have toward a watching world? It's our love for one another. It's our care for one another. It's our ability to outdo one another and to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice and bless those who persecute. Man, we value people by loving them. 
Look around. These are the people that you're to exercise this toward. These are the people. And as you exercise this toward one another, it'll just, the, the circle will get wider. And you'll extend beyond these walls. And you'll go into your neighborhoods. And you'll go throughout the community. But it starts here. It's cultivated here. It's energized here. Love each other. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we love you because you loved us first. You loved us by sending us your son. This ultimate example of what love really is. The benchmark of love. Sacrifice. Bleeding sacrifice. Help us to be people willing to sacrifice for each other, for the sake of the gospel, for the cause of love. God, if there's anybody that's here that may not know you, may have never put their faith in Jesus Christ, come to a place where they've really repented of their sin and and trusted in Jesus, God, I pray that, that they would do that today. That they would not leave here, they would not go to sleep tonight without doing business with you, without putting their trust in you that they would just put their doing down, that they would just cast their sin at your feet, and that they would just look to you and you alone for satisfaction and joy and eternal life because you're the only place that it's found. God, empower us and energize us to do these things that, that Paul has laid out in, in Romans chapter 12. We can't do this in the flesh. We, we can't do this by our own efforts. We need your Holy Spirit. We need to be mindful and intentional all the time about what it means to be a, a loving congregation. Thank you for this time and this place and this people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.